Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 5, Ezra chapters 2 and 3. Well, we'll continue today in the book of Ezra chapter 2. And what we've seen thus far in the book of Ezra is what we can call the preliminaries. Chapter 1 begins by recording the official end of the Babylonian exile. And it means, it's, it was done by means of the media Persian um, Empire, led by King Cyrus, who defeated Babylon and then absorbed their empire. Now, one of Cyrus's first acts was to order the liberation of the Jews, which included an encouragement for those Jews who wanted to, to migrate back to their Jewish homeland in Judah. Now, the Jews were also given permission to rebuild their holy temple. And this would be funded partially by voluntary donations from Persian Jews and non-Jewish Persians, Gentiles, and the remainder by the Persian government treasury. Now let me pause to define the term Persian Jews. One year earlier, these same Jews would have been called Babylonian Jews. The only reason they're now called Persian Jews is that with the Persian conquest of Babylon, the Jews are now subservient to a Persian king instead of a Babylonian king. And the name of the empire they're now part of, of course, has changed from Babylon to Persia. All of this happened almost overnight and without them having to relocate. And I tell you this because it does sound odd to say that the Jews came home to Judah from Persia and yet this is the return from what is called the Babylonian exile. Now the next thing we heard of in chapter 1 is well summed up in verse 5 of Ezra 1, 5. It says, The heads of the fathers' clans of Judah and Benjamin, along with the Kohanim, the priests, and the Levites, and indeed all whose spirit God had stirred, set out to go up and rebuild the house of Adonai in Jerusalem. The key words are all whose spirit God had stirred. Because as we found out in chapter 2, it was only a small fraction of the exiled Jewish population who decided to pack up and return to Judah. Something less than 5%. The remainder seemed unmotivated to want to return. Sometimes when we're reading the Bible, it's easy to forget that we're reading about usually just ordinary people who find themselves living out extraordinary circumstances. So the priests and especially uh, the priests especially had both a spiritual motivation and a personal motivation to return and to, to rebuild the temple because up in Babylon, now Persia, they had been relegated to the dustbin. Their status as exiles in a foreign land meant a loss of f- function 
and therefore status as God's priests. So it's pretty easy to imagine why they were thrilled to once again become relevant. The Levites, well, they were less anxious to return unless their clans had hereditarily assigned had been hereditarily assigned some of the more prestigious tasks like being musicians or singers or gatekeepers. Those who were simply temple custodians and servants to the priests, they didn't have very much motivation to leave their homes in Persia and revert to their rather lowly positions. Those called the heads of their father's clans are referring to several chiefs of the hereditary tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And they would have had the greatest economic motivation to go back to Judah because they held the largest amount of land and vineyards and fields and orchards and certainly they intended to reclaim it as quickly as possible. Chapter 2 then tells us who the heads of the clans were and who the political leaders were. As well as we get a breakdown of the categories of the Jews who returned. And since those who were returning were generally doing so as a result of a spiritual impulse caused by God, the categories that were used to describe them reflect the divine rationale that we find in the Torah. And that's used to categorize all Israel. The first group, the lay people, is Israel. Then the priests, those who are from the line of Aaron and were God-authorized to perform the temple ritual functions. And then the Levites, those who were the temple workers and who worked for the priests to do important tasks, tasks, but none of them that involved ritual. The Levite category was then further broken down in chapter 2. It was done so according to occupation, mainly the singers and the gatekeepers. Now it is interesting to note that in chapter 2, verse 41, under the occupation of singers... There's only one family name listed. Esaph. And if that name sounds familiar to you, it's because he is credited with writing 12 of the Psalms that we find in our Bibles. The songs of Esaph. It's important to remember that many of the Psalms were simply written as songs to be sung with music. Thus, from this we now learn that the reason we find some psalms written as songs by Asaph is he was the head of the clan of the temple singers. Lastly, we discuss the category of Levites presented starting in verse 43 of chapter 2. These folks are called the Netanim. They're temple workers. They were kind of a mixed breed of foreigners and Gibeonites and Levites. And they were assigned the lowliest temple duties, such as chopping wood, drawing and and carrying water, cleaning up the massive amounts of blood and gore that accompanied the high number of daily sacrifices and others of the unsavory but necessary tasks. 
So now let's pause and reread a short section of Ezra chapter 2 to finish up this chapter today and then we're going to move on into chapter 3. So open your Bibles to Ezra chapter 2. We're going to start reading at verse 55 and move on to the end. That will be page 1120 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. 1120 starting at Ezra chapter 2 verse 55. The descendants of Shlomo, Solomon's servants. Descendants of Sotai, descendants of Hasafret, descendants of Prudah, descendants of Ya'alah, descendants of Darkon, descendants of Gidel, descendants of Sheftiah, descendants of Atil, descendants of Pokoret, Hatzvaim, and descendants of Ami. And the temp- all the temple servants and the descendants of Shlomo's servants numbered 392. They went up from Tel, uh, Tel Malak, Tel Hasha, Kruv, Adon, Adon, and Emer, but they could not state which of their father's clan they or their children belonged to. So it wasn't clear whether they were from Israel. Descendants of Dela, descendants of Toviah, descendants of Nakodah, and the descendants of the priests. Descendants of Habiah, descendants of Hakots, and descendants of Barzillai, who took a wife from the daughters of Barzillai the Gileadite and was named after them. These tried to locate their genealogical records, but they weren't found. Therefore, they were considered defiled. They were not allowed to serve as Kohanim, as priests. The Tirshatah told them not to eat any of the especially holy food until a priest appeared who could consult the Urim and Tumim. The entire assembly numbered 42,360, not including their male and female slaves, of whom there were 7,337. They also had 200 male and female singers. Their horses numbered 736, their mules 245, camels 435, and donkeys 6,720. Now some of the heads of father's clans, when they came to the house of Adonai in Jerusalem, made voluntary offerings for rebuilding the house of God on its site. And according to the means they gave into the treasury for the work, 61,000 gold darkomim, 5,000 manim of silver, and 100 tunics for the priests. So the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns and all Israel in their towns. First of all, notice that in verse 58 we're told that lumped together the total number of temple workers, Nethanim, and of Solomon's servants totaled 392. Now, whether 392 is the correct number, that's pretty unlikely. But the important point is that by the Nethanim and Solomon's that the Nethanim and Solomon's servants were considered equally lowly and probably more or less served the same functions let's put it that way it's only that the descendants of Solomon's servants has to do with a time before the temple was first built when King David seems to have appointed his own priests and workers to do cultic work. And when Solomon completed the temple, these workers continued on in their tasks, as did 
their descendants and their descendants right on down to the time that Nebuchadnezzar destroyed that temple. These workers were not Levites. So whatever they did, it was so lowly that they were actually seen as lay servants to the Levites who themselves were servants to the priests. Thus apparently the priesthood didn't feel that they were breaking God's commandments that instructed that only members of the tribe of Levi could do work around the temple. Well, next in verse 59 is a list of common Jews, or at least those who claimed Jewish heritage, but there were no records or any kind of concrete proof to link them to an Israelite clan. So while they were allowed to migrate to Judah, since they had no proof of Jewish identity, they held a different status than the others. Now, although it doesn't specifically say so, they wouldn't have been entitled to claim any land or dwelling places their own. So their motivation for traveling back to Judah is unclear. Indeed, it may have been no more than a spiritually based impetus that neither they nor they nor anyone else could understand or resist. Of all the reasons, though, to go back to Judah, I can't think of a better one. So then in verse 61, we find a listing of those claiming to be descendants of priests. And theoretically, they should be able to serve as priests. However, like that previous list of lay people, they've been unable to prove their priestly family linkage. Thus, unless and until such proof could be provided... While they were allowed to accompany this first wave of Jewish returnees, they were not allowed to serve in function whatsoever as priests. Now, either both of these groups were unable to prove their ancestry because their records were destroyed or maybe they were lost during their exile, or they were out-and-out fakers. But this was unknown to the returning Jews just as it is to us. In fact, a fellow designated the Tishita barred those who claimed but couldn't prove their priestly status from eating what's called the especially holy food. In the Torah, in Leviticus chapters 2 and chapter 7, instructions are given that only priests could eat of certain sacrificial portions that were given at the altar. And even then, usually it had to be eaten inside the temple precinct. Those portions are designated as especially holy. So in order that this vital commandment not be accidentally broken, this Tirshita fellow ordered that this dubious group couldn't participate until their status was positively determined. And interestingly, he says that the means of this proof would have to come by the indication of the Urim and Tumim stones. But that couldn't occur until a high priest performed the Urim and Tumim ritual. And as a side note, 
If that instruction was scrupulously followed by the high priest, then it's highly unlikely that the Urim and Tumim were ever used to determine the status of these men who were currently in some kind of a limbo. And that was because of the lack of the presence of the Ark of the Covenant. Now we're going to get into a very interesting discussion about Ezra's rebuilt temple and the Ark of the Covenant in a later lesson. Now Tirshatah is a Persian word. It's actually a title. And it approximately means governor. So this was a title held by a governor of a province or or a district of the Persian Empire. Now we can't be sure who this person is. However, he was probably a Jew. As this was how Cyrus usually operated, he preferred to assign a Tirshatah who was of the same people over whom he would govern. So it's most likely that this governor was either Zerubbabel or his uncle Sheshbazar. Well, finally in verse 64, we get the sum total of all who returned, of every category, even those with questionable Jewish ancestry. 42,360. Since this is not a round number, we're left to assume that this is the precise count. In addition to this number of Jews are listed 7,337 slaves, also likely a precise count. Now these slaves would have been Gentile slaves because the Torah does not allow Jews to own other Jews as slaves. The mention of these 200 male and female singers is a round number, so it's an approximation. These are not the same as the Levite singers descended from Esau that we found back in verse 43. These would have been Gentiles and possibly some Jewish musicians retained by wealthier Jews for their own entertainment. I mean, they didn't have iPods or CDs just yet. Then in verse 66 are listed the beast of burden animals that they used for the trip back home. And that consisted of over 8,000 animals, including donkeys, horses, mules, and camels. You know, this was a long way to travel. It was probably around a four-month journey. We know from later chapters that many elderly returned, and they would have had to ride to survive that journey. The wealthy and the tribal chiefs and their families also would have ridden because of their aristocratic status. And in the chapter we're told that when they arrived back in Jerusalem, these heads of their father's clans made voluntary offerings to support this rebuilding project. These were wealthy men. And so they gave a sizable amount of gold and silver, but also apparently paid to have the specially prescribed tunics needed by the priesthood. Now verse 70 makes it clear everyone didn't live in Jerusalem. Rather, they went back to the towns and villages they were from, no doubt, to take back their lands and their homes. Now I say take back... 
because as we progress through Ezra and then Nehemiah, we're going to see a nasty tension built between the returnees and the few Jews who managed to avoid the exile and remained in Judah, as well as some racially mixed Jews who had intermarried with Gentiles and even some opportunistic foreigners who had moved in to the mostly emptied land of Judah. And of course, those three groups of people took over the exiles, former lands and fields and homes, and they were not at all sympathetic or amenable to giving them back to their original owners when they suddenly showed up after 50 to 70 years. It's not that Persian law and the Torah law weren't on the side of the returning Jews. It's that these returning Jews were about to take away the livelihoods and the homes of those who had moved in and lived there for at least three generations. Pretty dicey situation. These groups of people didn't see themselves as caretakers. They didn't see themselves as guarding over somebody else's property. They saw themselves as the new residents of the land. That's the situation. So let's with that now, let's move on into chapter 3 of Ezra. Ezra chapter 3 starts on page 1121 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. When the seventh month arrived, after the people of Israel had settled in the towns, the people gathered with one accord in Jerusalem. Then Yeshua, the son of Yotzedak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shaltiel, with his kinsmen, organized rebuilding the altar of the God of Israel, so that they could offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the Torah of Moshe, the man of God. They set up the altar on its former basis. Despite feeling threatened by the peoples of the surrounding countries, they offered on it burnt offerings to Adonai, the morning and evening burnt offerings. They observed the festival of Sukkot, as written, offering the daily the number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day, and afterwards the regular burnt offering, the offerings for Rosh Hodesh, and those for all the designated times set apart for Adonai, as well as those of everyone who volunteered a voluntary offering to Adonai. And from the first day of the seventh month, they began offering burnt offerings to Adonai, even though the foundation of Adonai's temple had not yet been laid. They also gave money for the stone workers and carpenters, as well as food, drink, and olive oil for the people of, of Sidon and Zor for bringing cedar logs from the Lebanon to the sea and on to Yafo in accordance with the authorization granted by Koresh, king of Persia. In the second year after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shaltiel, Yeshua, the son of Yosadak, the rest of the <clears throat> their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come out of exile to Jerusalem began the project. They appointed the Levites, age 20 and up, to direct work in the house of Adonai. 
Yeshua and his sons and his brothers, Kadmiel and his sons, and Yehuda's sons together directed their, the workers in the house of God. Also the sons of Henadad, with their sons and their kinsmen, the Levites. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of Adonai, the Kohanim in their robes with trumpets, the Levites, the sons of Esaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise Adonai as David, king of Israel, had instructed. They sang antiphonally, praising and giving thanks to Adonai, for he is good, for his grace continues forever towards Israel. All the people raised a great shout of praise to Adonai because the foundation of the house of Adonai had been laid. But many of the Kohanim, the Levites, and the heads of the father's clans, the old men who had seen the first house standing on its foundation, they wept out loud when they saw this house, while others shouted out loud for joy so that the people couldn't distinguish the noise of the joyful shouting from the noise of the people weeping. For the people were shouting so loudly that the noise could be heard at a great distance. Now, some time had passed, a few months, and the supreme reason for most of the zealous Jews to come home is about to commence. The temple had not yet been rebuilt, but the altar had been sufficiently repaired to be operable for sacrificing. When verse 1 says, the seventh month arrived, it means the seventh month of the current religious calendar year. Not that it's been seven months since they arrived back in Jerusalem. The seventh month is the month of Tishri, the September-October time frame. And once again we see that the editor of this book refers to the returning Jews as the people of Israel and that they gathered together in Jerusalem. Now as we discussed last week, this notion that the returning Babylonian exiles represent all Israel all 12 tribes is but a pleasant fiction that the Jews adopted. But it quickly turned from an expression to a tradition to finally an incontrovertible fact despite an entirely different historical and scriptural reality. Today, most of the Jewish community still sees themselves as representative of all Israel. And it has severely muddied the waters as the legendary ten lost tribes of Israel have reappeared. And many want to migrate to Israel from their locations throughout Asia. However, these ten tribes, of course, recognize they're not Jews. They're not tribally associated with with Judah or Benjamin. So they don't want to migrate to Israel as Jewish returnees, but rather as whom they are. Ephraim Israel returnees. Well, after getting settled in, these Jewish returnees meet together to celebrate in Jerusalem. The Hebrew words used to describe the gathering in Jerusalem are Keishachad, and the King James Version translates it most literally as as one man. That is, they met together as one man. 
The complete Jewish Bible uses, however, a dynamic translation to try to give us a sense of what as one man means. And it says, instead, in one accord. And that's a good modern sense of the meaning of that phrase. It doesn't mean every last man and woman came or that there was some divine and miraculous melding of bodies and minds among those who showed up. It means that those who gathered together were unified in purpose and in spirit. This fits very well with the thought process that appears later in the Bible in the New Testament when in Ephesians 2.15 we read that through His death on the cross Christ has removed the middle wall of partition between Jew and Gentile and created what? One new man. And the idea here is not that Jews become Gentiles or Gentiles become Jews or that there is some miraculous melding of human flesh. Rather it is that through faith in Messiah Jesus who's a Jew and Gentiles come together with them in spirit and in purpose. That's the point of it. And it carries with it exactly the same sense that we find here in Ezra 3. Then in verse 2 we see that the person named Yeshua that was listed among the returnees in chapter 2 has assumed his hereditary role as the high priest and along with the lesser priest and with Zerubbabel, their community leader and perhaps, perhaps the official Persian appointed governor at this time organized to begin the reconstruction but not of the temple only of the altar this was so they could restart the all important Levitical sacrificial system that was fundamental to proper Torah observance this group of Jews fully understood that without sacrifice Torah observance for the ultimate goal of harmony with God was not achievable. And this was because without sacrifice, atonement and cleansing from their sins was impossible. The stench of unatoned for guilt had been polluting the Jewish exiles for between 50 and 70 years and they were anxious to have this burden lifted. And yet, as good and proper and right-minded as this effort of the returning exiles was, it once again points to this serious ideological schism between the Jews who returned and those who elected to remain in the Persian Empire. It also tells us the foundations of Judaism had already been laid in Babylon and in Persia and it gave most Jews a false sense of harmony with the Lord. The bulk of diaspora Jews, apparently around 95% of them, felt it reasonable to find ways around Torah observance such as not being able to sacrifice, not having a priesthood to instruct and lead them because if those Jews 
who had remained behind actually believed that they were living in a sinful condition up in Babylon and Persia and they were walking around in a state of guilt and condemnation all of them would have done what that group of 50,000 did return to Judah as quickly as possible and get those sacrificial fires burning again the Lord did not give the Hebrews a series of options for atonement there was but one God prescribed means bloody sacrifices of animals on the altar at the temple in Jerusalem that's it that these Jews of Babylon and Persia invented a different way and they stuck with it even when they no longer had barriers to returning to Judah and to Torah observance this is a sad indictment of humankind's preference for our ways over God's ways and I'm sorry to say that we can probably apply this same condition this false sense of security and harmony with God to many segments of our modern church who have found ways around following God's word because of a preference for an easier and more comfortable doctrine instead of traditions even the wicked replacement theology doctrine that says that God's done with Israel that he will never allow them back into the promised land so the church has replaced them this continues rolling along even though Israel has returned to the land set up a a vibrant Jewish state and has proved this doctrine to be false why the stubborn refusal to recognize the obvious and reverse course because so many believers prefer man-made doctrines to God's truth I urge us all to continue on a path of working to peel away the dead skin of centuries of traditions and dubious doctrines so that we might reunite the Old Testament with the New and recognize that God's laws have not become extinct and that as believers in Christ we are indeed one new man but that doesn't end our obligations to the Lord and these obligations begin with obedience to Him and to His Word yes indeed that does make us similar to that 5% of those zealous Babylonian exiles who returned and they would need opposition especially from their own brethren all along the way to the attempted restoration of the true biblical religion and they paid a price for that dedication and so are we going to they reconstructed the temple altar on the same altar foundation that Solomon first laid no doubt this would have involved some amount of demolition and remodeling of whatever remained of the existing altar and regardless of its dilapidated condition this restoration would have caused resentment among some of the inhabitants who had remained in the land as well as some among some of the elder Jews who returned and knew of the altar as it was originally 
In fact, in verse 3, we immediately hear in these returned exiles of a fear of the people. It says of the surrounding countries. Actually, what the Hebrew says is a fear of the Amim Haaretz. Fear of the people of the lands. In other words, while this phrase contains some ambiguity, it's obviously referring to others than those Jews who return from the exile. Those others are probably not people from other countries. Why would they care about the rebuilding of an altar? Rather, they are people from the villages and the cities surrounding Jerusalem who were inhabited by a mixture of Judahites who hadn't been exiles and foreigners who had moved in during the exile. Why would these exiled Jews fear those people? For one reason only. Those locals made threats. And they made it clear they did not want reconstruction activity of any kind to occur. Even so, the altar was quickly rebuilt and burnt offerings of various kinds began again, as well as the burnt offerings of the morning and the evening. This is referring to the daily offerings, the tamid offerings. Further, later chapters are going to confirm that they refrained from building the temple for a few years, no doubt due to too much opposition. Next in verse 4, they celebrated Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. One wonders exactly what parts of the observance they were able to keep. But we are made aware that they at least offered the Torah prescribed animal sacrifices on their newly reconstructed altar. And in addition to that, they offered up the daily, the tamid, sacrifices. The seventh month of the Hebrew religious calendar involves more than just the Feast of Sukkot, which begins on the 15th of the month. The first day of the seventh month is the feast of Yom Teruah, Feast of Trumpets, that is better known today as Rosh Hashanah, Jewish New Year's. And then ten days later is the incomparable Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Although there's a slight hint that they might have, we don't specifically hear of them celebrating those first two feasts of the month. For some reason, instead, they seem to begin with Sukkot. Now, while I'm not sure of the reason why they might have skipped, say, Rosh Hashanah, and they might well have celebrated it, no doubt Yom Kippur wasn't celebrated. Because the central issue of Yom Kippur involved the high priest entering the Holy of Holies. And since the temple wasn't yet rebuilt, there was no Holy of Holies to re-enter. Even so, we're told they celebrated Rosh Hodesh, the new month, and observed other sacrificial rituals as well. In other words, they did what they determined was the best they could do under the circumstances. They weren't able to do all the ritual requirements, but what parts they did do met the biblical requirement. And I think that this is a good pattern for Messianic and Hebrew roots folks, and something hopefully more and more mainstream churches as well will follow. We are in somewhat 
the same position as these newly returned Jews from Babylon. For them, as for us, there is no temple. And thus, there are many elements of the law of Moses that can't be observed no matter how much our hearts might yearn to do it. So the absence of a temple limits the extent of what part of the Torah law we can even follow, including the celebration of the seven biblical feasts. Notice that even though not every Torah-prescribed ritual element was available for them to perform, these priests and Jews they officiated over still did as much of the law as they could do. And in a light versus heavy, a call vomer situation like this, on balance, I see their decision and approach as infinitely better than merely disregarding the parts of the law that can be reasonably observed because it can't be done perfectly or completely rather than choosing to do nothing or to adopt something entirely different. See, this verse ends with an important piece of information that may help us to understand the challenging timing now of these several events. The foundation of the temple was not yet laid when they celebrated Sukkot. One of the issues we have, and we're going to have it now for the next many months, of dealing with Ezra and Nehemiah is the timing of events because there seems to be discrepancies. In the search for solutions to solve these seeming discrepancies, a number of reliable and astute scholars agree on a solution that I think strikes the chord of truth. They believe that at this point in Ezra chapter 3, there is a break in the author's narrative. In other words, look at your Bibles. Verses 1 through 6 of chapter 3 represents a unit of thought that ends with the notice that the temple foundations hadn't been laid. And then, upon verse 7, a new unit begins. But to see this solution, we have to disregard chapter and verse markings and where paragraphs begin and end. Now I want to explain this. We've discussed chapter and verse designations before. And the thing to remember is, these are entirely artificial and arbitrary designations. Scholars first divided the Bible into chapters sometime during the 1200s A.D. The original writings are not divided into chapters. And then in the 1500s A.D., chapters were further divided into verses. So while these chapter and verse divisions don't change or harm the scriptural texts, at times they can give a modern reader the wrong impression. In the Western world, we've been taught to always understand that a chapter marks some kind of a change. There's no standard definition of where or why to create a chapter break. 
However, a change of, lo- of, of characters or location or, or plot or maybe a lapse in times among some of the rationale that authors use to insert chapter breaks. Paragraphs operate similarly. They denote a change of some sort, perhaps a more minor change than what a new chapter indicates. So when we see that verse 6 ends and chapter 7 begins and that they are connected and they reside within the same paragraph, our natural assumption is that the same action and time and place is just continuing right on from verse 6 to verse 7. However, a change of characters or location or plot isn't isn't necessarily what's happening here. And indeed, the modern editor, by arranging verses and, and, and paragraphs in this chapter, leaves this feeling that verses 6 and 7 are completely connected and a little later on, there's a break. So here in Ezra chapter 3, more and more it appears that the paragraph break is in the wrong place. Rather than occurring after verse 7, it should occur after verse 6. And so verse 7 represents a change. And in this case, it represents a leap ahead in time and the beginning of a new situation. So what does all this mean for our understanding of this passage? It is that up to and during the Sukkot festival, we are told that the temple foundation wasn't yet laid. In fact, there was no building going on. Even more, this must have occurred in the second year of King Cyrus, perhaps a year after King Cyrus gave the order for the Jews to return. And so, these Jews had only very recently arrived back in Jerusalem and therefore they only had time to reconstruct the altar sufficiently to have proper sacrifice on it. Now, reconstructing the temple... That would take years of planning and work. But they were in a big rush to begin sacrificing and having festivals. And their goal then was to get that altar readied in time for Sukkot. This is good logical thinking. And it reflects their desire to begin doing the most important Torah observances first, which is sacrificing on the altar. Verse 7 then probably jumps ahead maybe 17 or 18 years to the time of the Persian king Darius. Now I want to repeat that. There is probably a time jump between verses 6 and verse 7. See, after the death of King Cyrus, his son Cambyses ruled for only about eight years, and then some strange imposter named Bardia ruled for a few weeks, and then King Darius was crowned. 
Now verse 7 likely takes place early in the reign of King Darius. And verse 7 explains that the returning Jews paid to have building materials, logs and wood paneling, brought from the forests of Lebanon and delivered by boat to the seaport of Jaffa, or in Hebrew, Yafo. From there, the lumber would be transported overland to Jerusalem. Now here's the thing. You don't pay for and order building materials until you first created a design. Because you don't know what you're going to need. Logs and paneling, oh, they were fabulously expensive and luxurious at that time. The forests from which they were harvested were carefully guarded and they were considered a treasure, a resource that was available only to royalty and to the wealthiest. And even though these Jews had some money from a number of sources, we'll find in the end they only managed to build a rather modest new temple to replace Solomon's opulent one, the one that's now laying in a heap. And it greatly disappointed many folks. So it's not like the Jewish builders had some unlimited budget. They did not have a king's treasury available to them to start buying up logs and paneling and just kind of stockpiling in case they needed them. Bottom line, substantial time had to pass from the time they arrived back in Jerusalem to when they could organize to plan the new temple, then order the materials, and then to actually transport them all the way from the Lebanon down to Jerusalem. Years would pass. So if my suggested timeline is correct, it would be around 17 to 18 years from the time the Jews arrived back in Jerusalem until the temple reconstruction began in earnest. And we're going to continue with this chapter next week.